Pokemon, persuasion, and parents of gay teens. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer questions about science, faith, and life. And I have to tell you, I have really been enjoying being at home for a little while. I feel like myself again. It's so weird and so wonderful that I've got a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Less than last week, but still some stuff. I'm wasting the intro. What do you say? Let's get it started. Okay, so I have this calendar, and I don't mean my normal calendar. Uh, I mean like a special calendar, and this special calendar has all these dates on it like any calendar would, but on the dates of this calendar are the things we're doing to get ready for the book release, my book, Finding God in the Waves. And I, I don't know. I get so torn on this because I'm realizing that the people who listen to me the most, who follow most of my work are going to hear about my book a gazillion times, and I honestly worried that you're going to get tired of it. Uh, but then because I have a previous career in advertising and I read my analytics and little data points, I actually understand that, believe it or not, most people that follow me don't even know I have a book coming out. So there's this weird thing where you have to say it over and over for people to hear it, with the risk that the people who pay the most attention will get tired of it. So the way I've tried to mitigate that is by having lots of different things happening and different things to talk about and even some rewards for the people who listen more often. For example, if you follow me closely on Twitter, Facebook, and this podcast, you probably pre-ordered the book really early and so you got entered into this drawing that every month we're drawing a name from the people who pre-order the book and we're uh, sending someone an early copy of the book every month, and then that person is going to have a phone call with me one-on-one to talk about their questions about the book, their impressions. I had the first one of those with a guy named Ian. It was wonderful, and uh, this week we're going to pull the winner for July, but also today we're announcing the second bit of pre-order bonus content for people that pre-order the book. Okay, so in other words, you pre-order it, then you go to findinggodintheways.com, you fill out a little form, there's a link at the bottom of the page, and that gets you this stuff. So in addition to the drawing, if you pre-order the book, you're also going to get three guided meditations that I recorded and uh, Michael Gunger uh, scored. He put the music behind them. So it'll take you through a couple of exercises on centering prayer and one Ignatian exercise. And in my book, we have a, a whole chapter on prayer, the science of prayer, the logical contradictions on prayer, what prayer means to us, and of course, types of prayer and meditation you can try that are backed by science as being good for your brain and good for your emotional outlook and good for the way that you relate to other people. Okay, so that today, big deal, second round of bonus content. We're going to have additional bonus content every month as we lead into the book's release on September 13th. See what I did there? I gave you a new piece of information about a thing you've already heard about, 
if you follow the show closely. And if you don't and you're hearing about the book for the first time, you're like, oh, wow, a contest and free content. Maybe I should order the book. (laughs) I hope that's what you're thinking and not I'm going to pause this podcast or skip over to You Made It Weird. Uh, So there's that. Also, we last week announced the book tour, which is a mixture of liturgist gathering appearances, Ask Science Mike Live, and me telling my story at other venues. Three types of appearances, all of which have something in common, a meet and greet and book signing, so I can see you personally. So our first dates have come out. Uh, This week we uh, signed and inked agreements on a couple more, so we'll get uh, ticket sales set up for those soon. So this week, maybe next week, you'll see a few more dates come out, especially if you're on the West Coast. Pay attention this week to any potential uh, date and venue announcements. I'd love to see you on tour. Uh, So basically... Before I answer your questions this week, once again, I'm pausing to talk about the book. And I'm just hoping, uh, for those of you who follow closely, you don't get tired of hearing this. I've worked so hard on this book, and I have such big goals for it in terms of the people who need it finding it, people who feel estranged spiritually, people who struggle to understand who or what God is in the light of science. I've never worked so hard on anything in my life as I have on this book, and it's written with uh, the top 25 questions I get most often. That's why the book is written like it is, to try and help address things I just get asked over and over in depth in a way I'm not able to do on a podcast or a blog post or uh, anything like that. So that's why I keep talking about the book, and hopefully you'll keep listening and tell your friends. Uh, What do you say? Let's do a show. Hi, Science Mike. I have a question for you about the role of verbal persuasion in the process of overcoming fear. So I work at a Bible camp, and in the summer we have lots of young kids who come up. And at this camp we have a big climbing tower, and you can climb up this tower, and when you get to the top, you can go down our zip line. So I have often worked... At that part of the tower, we call it the perch, and i that's where you take the camper off of their climbing rope and you put them onto the zipline rope, and then they have the choice to scooch themselves off and go down. And it's lots of fun, but understandably, a lot of kids get scared up there, and they struggle to make that choice to scooch themselves off. And it seems like the longer they wait... And the more they hesitate, the uh, the harder it gets for them to do it. And I have done this many times, and I have talked a lot of kids through this process. And I, I kind of feel like I only really have three tricks, though, like a few things I talk about. I, I reassure them that the equipment is reliable and it's not going to drop them, all this stuff. And I guess I was just wondering um, – just, there's just a lot of times where it seems like no matter what I say – there's nothing that's going to convince those kids to go down the zip line. And so last time this happened, I thought, I wonder what Science Mike would have to say about the role of verbal persuasion. And, and even if I'm making the 
best argument possible for why this is a totally safe process and nothing's going to happen to them, it still doesn't um, – that that argument still doesn't take root in their minds and give them comfort. So I'm kind of wondering why that is. Um, if you have any tips for how to help them conquer their fears, obviously this is challenged by choice. I've never forced a kid to go down. They always have the option to um, to opt out and climb back down the wall. So – not looking to force anyone, but there is something about the victory and the the smile on their face when they finally um, do it and they're proud of themselves. So I love to see that. I love to uh, help kids conquer their fears. So, so is there anything verbally that I can do to make that process easier? Thanks. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. It's a really interesting question, and uh, hopefully I can shed a little light on some possible uh, procedural or methodological ideas on how to help people deal with this. First of all, let's talk about the fear of heights, which psychologists label acrophobia. It is super, super common in almost any survey of common fears or phobia. It's going to be in the top five. Often it's going to be in the top two or three. Lots and lots of people are afraid of heights and afraid of falling and of course they are. It's not an irrational thing to be afraid of falling. 9.8 meters per second squared, which is the acceleration curve of gravity on the earth, accelerates things really quickly. So you don't need a very uh, far fall to create injury and not not much more than that to be potentially lethal or almost certainly lethal even. And even though evolutionarily speaking, Some of our ancestors were probably tree dwellers. Uh, Humans and hominids have been on the ground for a long time. So evolution has rewarded a healthy fear of heights and falling in human beings. It's totally normal, totally natural, uh, which I usually start there by affirming people that it's normal and even healthy to be afraid like they are, right? Uh, That can create a sense of comfort. But here's the problem with even that approach. Verbal persuasion is working with the brain's language centers and analytical centers. You're doing a lot of work in the left temporal lobe in most people uh, and up in the prefrontal area, a lot of neocortical thinking. But um, someone up on a high wall or tower thinking about going down a zip line isn't looking at data points or analysis. They're not thinking about the statistics of falls or accidents on the equipment. Uh, that part of their brain is not part of their decision-making process at the time. They are in a basic flight or fight survival state, paralysis even, and their limbic system is activated. They're surging with adrenaline. They've got an elevated pulse rate. They've got elevated respiration rates. Uh, They probably even have tingling hands and feet. They have all the physiological signs of being in a total state of fear. Uh, And why not? Everything that evolutionists has primed them for is they are in a dangerous and precarious position that could end their lives. So here's the thing. In my opinion, once you have someone on top of that wall it's almost too late to work with their fear of heights, right? Someone who's merely hesitant, someone who's just got to get a little nerve, 
you're going to be able to work with them. But for someone who has a genuine phobia or a, or, or a deeper-seated fear of heights, nothing you can say is going to bring them out of that state once they're up on the wall. So in that case, your best bet in terms of what I understand about psychology and human conditioning is to work with them on the ground before they get to that state, okay? In the hours or even days before they're going to try to do the zip line. And here's a few techniques uh, you could contemplate or consider. First of all is rehearsals on the ground. You want to describe the process, the equipment, the surroundings to give people a sense of familiarity or even certainty about what will happen and when. If possible, if there's harnesses or safety equipment, you may want to have that so people can try it on, people can rehearse what it feels like. Um, And you may even want to go through a routine on the ground that trains people to go through the motions of going down the zip line. So you you might even have a a clock rhythm, uh, 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 uh. As they climb the wall, they go on the top, they hook the harness, whatever happens, and then a one, two, three, and they go. And if you can do that, you're going to prime that flight or fight reaction to execute a path to safety. Uh, And in that process, in addition to kind of working with routine and tangible practice, you also want to encourage people to visualize things, visualize the freeing sensation, the sense of empowerment on the zip line, their friends cheering for them, their feet safely on the ground. So you want to illustrate that the fastest way to get back to solid ground is to actually go down the zip line and not climb back down the wall. But you want to say that before someone is up there. Once someone's up there, it's not, it's not really going to help. The other thing to teach people is progressive relaxation. Uh, and this is useful for any kind of fear or phobia where people learn to become aware of their respiration, of their muscle tension, of their posture, and consciously adjust those things to become more calm. Now, for people with deep, deep fears, uh, a camp setting is not going to go deep enough into progressive relaxation to be helpful. Uh, but it's it's going to be a useful skill to establish for anyone and for people with a more mild sense of fear of heights or fear of falling. Uh, that may be enough that they're able to, through a visualized outcome, a practiced routine, and progressive relaxation, uh, conquer their fear and try the zip line. Our next question came in via email and it reads, Hey Mike. As with every other question, let me start by thanking you for your work. It has provided a much-needed platform for conversation, I believe is so vital for so many people. However, my question is a rather light one. I am currently walking around my neighborhood hunting for virtual animals on Pokemon Go and seriously enjoying it. I have seen so many people like me hunting for Pokemon, as it seems this game has caused a massive shake in the world and seems to be a huge social phenomenon. My question is two-pronged. Firstly, what science might be involved in this type of social phenomenon, i.e., why has this game in particular succeeded in getting so many people involved? And also, what are the possible positive and negative implications of this game? Thanks again. Well, thank you for the question. Uh, Ask Science Mike 
has recently been pretty heavy, and that's just the questions that come in and the questions that get picked for the show. Um, that's not like an intentional choice. I don't think I or anyone has made, but I do like just talking about the fun parts of science as well, even the fun parts of faith. Uh, so thanks for a question that is going to lighten it up a little bit for this episode. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about some of the psychological and behavioral itches that Pokemon Go scratches. First of all, humans do have an inclination towards collecting. McDonald's has exploited this fact for years with Happy Meal toys and the message, collect them all. Baseball cards do this. Uh, If we have a feeling that there's a set of something and we have part of that set, we have a desire to complete the entire set. It's just a human thing. It's a a documented behavior. Uh, Pokemon also is leveraging nostalgia and familiarity. This is a long-standing brand. Pokemon has been uh, famous and successful since, I believe, the 1990s. And so this app version of the game with these augmented reality elements is very familiar from the start, uh, which leverages an existing platform. You don't have to go get a Game Boy or dig your Game Boy out of the closet. If you own a Game Boy, you don't even have to have it on you. Your iPhone is always there if you have an iPhone. And that's one of the reasons that Pokemon Go is so successful because you know, Apple announced last week that they've sold 1 billion iPhones. They've sold a billion of them. There's a lot of devices out there. Another thing that's working for Pokemon is social identity and fear of missing out. A lot of people are playing Pokemon. When, they, when someone hears several of their friends or people in their social network or media figures say they've done this and tried it, they want to try it too to see what the fuss is about. So this kind of combination of collecting nostalgia, and social identity has led Pokemon Go to be perfectly positioned to be really successful. Over 50 million downloads in just the first few days. It's really, really incredible. You know, good work on that app developer to kind of get lightning in a bottle that way. Now, things that are beneficial about Pokemon, in my opinion, it gets people out and moving. Video gaming tends to be a sedentary activity. And as a society, we are becoming more and more sedentary. And this is a game that rewards physical movement. You have to get out and go in order to collect all the Pokemon. Uh, And related to that, it's great for socialization and ice breaking. I haven't played a lot of Pokemon, but the little I have, I've run into other people playing it as well and struck up a conversation with uh, someone I don't know, which I would not have done otherwise. So it creates... Uh, an opportunity for socialization and bonding and activity for a society that tends to be isolated and sedentary. So I think that's incredibly healthy. And this is really well illustrated in children on the autism spectrum uh, because I've seen multiple accounts of autistic spectrum children asking to go outside, asking to go to playgrounds, when they get there, socializing with other children, socializing with other adults, with the shared experience of uh, Pokemon. So it it creates a palatable, tangible experience that creates just enough distance and enough familiarity for people uh, with some autism spectrum uh, disorder or just being on the autism spectrum 
are able to not only tolerate, but actually enjoy activities uh, and settings that were once overwhelming. And I have seen a lot of accounts like that. And there that's got to be counted as a positive implication for Pokemon Go. Now, negative implications, there are a few. One, watch out for compulsive or addicted behavior. Every time you're checking to see if there's a Pokemon nearby, you're going to have a little dopamine spike in your brain. When you find one, you get this nice uh, rewarding pleasure reaction in your ventral stratum, most likely. And that is the cycle on which compulsive behaviors and addiction are built. So just be mindful of that. If you like have to play some Pokemon, maybe take a break. Uh, (laughs) Then the other thing that really is a concern is physical safety. And I'm talking about people uh, being distracted while they walk, while they drive, while they ride a bicycle. Don't walk into things. Don't walk off cliffs. Really do pay attention to your surroundings. Don't lose yourself in the rendered world on screen while you look for a Pokemon. I actually saw this amazing video where some rare Pokemon appeared in a park in New York and there was this mob of people descending from all four directions towards this Pokemon. It was incredible, but they were crossing over a roadway. Uh, Cars were having to stop. That's dangerous. Uh, Be aware of your physical safety. Be mindful of your surroundings. because you can't catch them all <laughs> if you hurt yourself badly. Hi, Mike. This is Kevin from Boise, Idaho. Uh, my dad passed away about six months ago, and his health had been failing him for some time. Uh, leading up to uh, the end of his life, he had always talked about that he wasn't afraid to die, that he knew where he was going. Uh, he had always been a man of, of great faith. Uh, We couldn't really communicate much with him uh, in his final hours, um, and we had him kind of sitting up in his bed, um, and he did something at the end of his life uh, that um, I just can't get out of my head. I I think about it all the time. Um, He kind of lifted his head up a little bit and opened his eyes real wide and just said, wow, and then laid his head back down. Um, I jumped out of my chair and, and was kind of shaking him a little bit and, and was asking him, what, what did he see? You know, what did you see, Dad? Um, but that was it. Uh, he was gone. Um, I like to think that he got a glimpse of, of where he was headed. Um, but I would imagine that there's a lot going on um, in your brain as, as your body and, and your organs are preparing itself to, to shut down. Um, so that's my question. Um, has there ever been any studies on... Uh, what's going on with the brain and the body as it's preparing itself to, to, to shut down and die. Uh, thanks for all that you do. Um, I love the podcast. It absolutely changed my life. And I uh, can't, can't, can't wait to read your book. Thanks. Bye. First, I want to say that I'm sorry for your loss. And I know it's difficult uh, losing a loved one, especially a parent. And I also want to say that I'm glad that you had the opportunity to be with him as he passed. And I hope that ends up being something that is a memory that you cherish and that um, is valuable to you uh, as you move on with your life. Now, if we talk about uh, studies of the brain and what happens during brain death, believe it or not, that is still more of a mystery than something well understood in the sciences. Uh, When humans are dying, we tend to focus on either keeping them alive, 
or keeping them comfortable as they die. And neither of those are especially conducive to doing brain studies and brain scans. Uh, Not to mention that most of the equipment that can do brain imaging is very expensive and in high demand. It's very difficult to predict when people will pass. For those of you who've been through an end-of-life situation with someone, you know sometimes it happens in minutes or hours, and other times it happens in days. And uh, because of that, we just haven't had many opportunities to get a real-time picture of a human brain as it passes. Um, we do have some experiences you know, based on um, medical data. Uh, when people die, they often are being um, monitored and recorded by medical equipment. They may have EEGs, uh, but in terms of a deep picture into the brain with you know, modern brain imaging, there's just not a lot out there. So that means we have a number of plausible scientific explanations for the various near-death and death experience phenomenon um, that have been reported, but we don't have any that are slam dunk or would have experimental or observational support to uh, give them the kind of confidence we would need to rely on them, right? So if you kind of think about common themes that people describe uh, who have been close to death, a sense of peace, a sense of detachment from the physical body, a sense of comfort and love, passing through a tunnel of light, being in the company of loved ones, being in the company of the divine, all these experiences seem to map pretty well to our understanding of the structures and function of the brain. Um, We do know that some of these experiences, uh, the tunnel of light, out-of-body experiences, are sometimes experienced by pilots and astronauts as they train to deal with G-forces. So if you reduce blood flow to the brain, people start having uh, experiences that are much like near-death experiences. Um, And when we observe people who are passing, what you've just talked about, towards the end of life, um, not just a, a, a sudden sign of life, but sometimes people have a wondrous reaction and that's their last uh, conscious and interactive experience with those around them. So some of the studies we have done involve rats and their heart-brain relationship. So we understand that as rats enter a state of cardiac arrest, uh, which, by the way, your heart and your brain are very closely linked, so it's not just oxygen starvation that uh, slows down or eliminates brain activity. It's literally just the heart-brain linkage. We know that as they go into cardiac arrest, that their brains go into a hyper-connected state, and that that may explain some of these phenomenon. We also know that neurotransmitters related to a sense of peacefulness and heightened awareness are released in near-death experiences and cardiac distress situations, um, which would help explain some of those experiences. So, so you can imagine if that was happening with your father. Oh, wow, this sudden sense of peace a sudden lack of pain, and a sudden um, dramatically increased sense of spatial awareness and consciousness uh, would be a relief and would be quite beautiful. And that leads me to one of the more encouraging um, things we understand about near-death experiences. Most of them are really quite pleasant. Um, People who survive near-death experiences tend to be uh, permanently changed uh, uh, through them. 
Now, some people do have very disturbing near-death experiences centered on uh, you know, visions of violence or persecution. Uh, but some neuroscientists believe that what happened with those folks is they didn't go deeply enough into a near-death experience to have the positive parts uh, of the experience of brain death. So many people who've had beautiful uh, near-death experiences have started with uh, more disturbing imagery or darkness or fear that was then transcended. Now, we would imagine neurologically that would be something like the amygdala, which is uh, responsible for keeping us safe through fear and anger, but is also very energy expensive. Starting off in kind of a panic state, things are wrong with the body, uh, but then there's not enough resources to keep the amygdala running, so it goes quiet, and then other parts of the brain experience this sense of peacefulness. You know, your parietal lobe is way up on the top of your brain in your neocortex. It's one of the first things your brain will kind of uh, stop worrying about if you're in a really uh, significant state of distress, and that's going to decrease your sense of physical awareness and increase your sense of unity and peace. Same thing, your visual cortex is a pretty expensive bit of neurological hardware, and we would imagine that as it became inactive, it would look a lot like a tunnel of light, which would lead to the memory centers of the brain, your loved ones, the ones you think about the most being present and around you. Now, that's just the materialistic explanation. And any serious scientist will be quick to tell you, even people who study this as a matter of their career, that our understanding of the end of life, especially in regards to the brain, is not well understood today. So even if we can provide plausible brain-based explanations for these experiences, it still raises questions. Are, are, are our brains designed in such a way to prepare us for something that may come next? Or is it simply a, a gift of evolution, a fortunate happenstance that our passage from this world appears to be one in which we experience maybe the greatest sense of peace and acceptance that we ever will in life? I don't know. Either way, death is not something that I fear. The passage of our conscious experience in this body, in this world, is to be celebrated as much as the moment that we enter it. Because your dad left a mark in this world. And in your own brain, in your own synapses, you carry this mosaic, this image of your dad. You can picture his face. You can hear his voice. You can probably even guess really, really accurately how he would answer a question because you knew him so well and you carry him with you. And in the same way, others carry you with them. (laughs) It's so beautiful. And that's just physics and biology. When we open our minds and our hearts to the possibility of even something more, something immaterial, something we would call spirit, then we truly see what a gracious gift that both life and death are. Our last question came in via email, and it reads... 
Dear Science Mike, My mom found out I am gay recently. She told me they might have to kick me out if I don't try to fix it, so I'm currently reading one of those ex-gay books. I'm doing it because I'm afraid if I don't pretend like it's helping, she will send me to an ex-gay therapy and I really don't feel like doing any of those crazy things I've seen in documentaries and whatnot. She has said a lot of hurtful and ignorant things, including, but not limited to, you don't know the difference between attraction and perversion, that's the problem, or you have this problem because you were too rebellious as a little boy, or you need to fix this and live for Jesus or I will pray for God to kill you. I'm not in a position right now to change their beliefs since they still see me as subservient to them and not as an autonomous adult. When I am on my own, however, and living my life, how should I approach them both from a scientific standpoint? How does one respond to things like this without turning on their flight-or-fight instinct by challenging their beliefs and presuppositions about gay people and our relationships and experiences? I am so sorry your parents, the people who are most responsible for watching over you and making you feel loved and accepted have failed in that most basic charge. There is nothing wrong with you. You are exactly who God made you to be. It is not a sin to be gay It is not a sin to be in same-sex relationships. And I am so sorry that that's your experience. And before we talk about how to change minds, I want to talk about you. (laughs) We have got to talk about you and your safety and your well-being. More than whatever your parents think, I want your primary mission to be focusing on your own safety and your own well-being. I don't believe your parents are safe for you emotionally, and they may not be safe for you physically, because you need to fix this and live for Jesus, or I will pray for God to kill you. Sounds like a threat to me. And if you have any reason at any moment to believe that your physical safety is in danger, seek help. Call 911, call a crisis center, and get out. There are too many dead gay children and teenagers in this country, and it is time for that to stop. There is nothing wrong with you. In the show notes on this week's show, uh, I'm going to have some resources so that you can find gay-friendly churches, support groups, crisis centers, anything that you need. And I would just say, get out as soon as you can, as soon as you can financially support yourself, as soon as you are legally autonomous, get out. Your parents, unfortunately, are not looking out for you. Now, once you get out, Boundaries will be important. You don't have to cut your parents out of your life. You don't have to convince them of anything. 
Your mission is to first to survive and then to learn to thrive as a human being, not to redeem your parents or even to redeem what your parents think about you. I don't even know you, and I'm proud of you. You may find that someone with more distance may be better positioned to help your parents see new things about their faith, about LGBTQ experiences. I just would not worry about convincing them of anything. Now, I understand you want their love and you want their approval. And no one should have to go through what you're going through. But this this version of the faith, this version of Christianity that values a legalistic structure, that values fundamentalism over human life and human love, it's anti-gospel. But it's the story that your parents have been handed and they don't know how to let it go. So you have to look out for you. You have to forge relationships with other people that will love and affirm you exactly as you are. Now, if it matters so much that you shift your parents' thinking and perspective, uh, first, uh, go to therapy. Work through, and this will probably take the rest of your life, (laughs) Work through the feelings of pain and rejection that you feel. Because if, if you don't, it's going to be the subtext of any conversation you have with your parents for the rest of your life. Oh, man. So brutal. It's so terrible that that burden falls on you. But start, start with that. Start by finding healing and growth for yourself. And then understand that, scientifically speaking, trying to convince someone of something puts up their cognitive defenses, their self-defenses. They become resistant. So it is actually more powerful to share stories with people than to try to convince them of things. If you listen to episode 20 of the Liturgist podcast called LGBT, you'll notice that it is a series of stories and lived experiences. And interspersed in those stories are information and vignettes that contain scientific backing or whatever. But the focus is on stories because with that podcast, our goal was to actually start to change people's minds on this topic. If we couldn't convince them their view on the sinfulness of same-sex relationships was wrong, we hoped at least we could convince people that mocking, discriminating, and persecuting LGBTQ people is a sin that it has nothing to do with the cause of Christ. And so the more you can focus on stories and the more you can focus on just being healthy, the more persuasive you'll be. Basically, the less you try to persuade, uh, the more you will persuade. And there's hope. I think there's hope for the church. I even think there's hope for your parents. I was reading a story this week about a musician who came out to her very religious father. He went straight to his closet and uh, pulled a Bible off the top shelf. And then she kind of braced herself for the rebuke. And he spent hours pouring through the Bible to find support for who she was. People are coming around. We've seen enough lesbian and gay suicides. 
we've seen enough persecution. Enough that America's starting to realize that, yes, love really is love. And in time, I hope simple social pressure will begin to move the minds and hearts of people like your parents. I admire so much uh, that you want to help them see the light. I just pray that in the process you don't lose your own. Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and in that is the implicit command to love ourselves. You can't reach out to your parents if you don't first reach out to yourself, and I would just encourage you to take care of yourself right now above all else. Thank you so much for your email. Even though I'm Science Mike, Ask Science Mike is not my show, and it's not about me. How do I know? Because I can't ask questions. (laughs) The show is made possible by the people every week who send in questions about science, faith, and life. If you'd like to be one of them, use the hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, or head over to AskScienceMike.com, where you can record an audio question or a text question, including anonymous questions, and we'll consider them for inclusion on the show. Our show is made possible by the generous contributions of my patrons on Patreon, and in addition to financially enabling the program, they also do the work of picking the questions for each week's program. If you'd like to be among them, go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Patreon icon to learn more. Now, if money's tight and you don't have any questions, but you enjoy the program, you can still help. Simply log on to iTunes, go to Podcasts, and search Ask Science Mike and leave a rating for the program or share one of your favorite episodes on social media. It helps the program find those who need it. Finally, I'd like to thank Andrew Galucky for his work in pre-production and organizing our Together Groups. Together is a series of Facebook groups where people who listen to Ask Science Mike find each other in different communities. To learn more, go to AskScienceMike.com and click on the Together icon. I want to thank Greg Nordine, the producer and sound designer for Ask Science Mike, and Jeb Bodiford, who wrote our theme song. Thanks for listening to Ask Science Mike, and I will see you next week.